Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17 is the sermon text for today. And then we will also read Romans 5, 12 through 21. Genesis 2, verse 4. Hear now the word of God. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden and in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is more familiar to us. It is the Tigris, which flowed east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let us go now to Romans chapter 5 and look at verses 12 through 21. This text is a very important text and it corresponds in somewhat to the uh, to the one that we have just read. Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification." For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So far the reading of God's most holy word, and our prayer is that the Lord would bless the preaching of it even now. In the previous sermon, brothers and sisters, I made five general big-picture observations concerning Genesis 2, 4 through 25. 
The five observations were these, quickly. Genesis 2.4 marks the beginning of a new section of the book of Genesis. Remember the phrase, these are the generations of, marks the transition from one section to another in the book of Genesis. Two, the creation account of Genesis 2 does not compete with the creation account of Genesis 1, but complements it, providing a different perspective and emphasis. Remember that in Genesis 1, God is the transcendent and all-powerful creator of heaven and earth. He is perhaps far from us, distant. But in Genesis 2, God is near to His people. He is hands-on. He is present with us. Uh, the focus, 3, of Genesis 2, 4 through 25 is God entering into covenant with the man that He had made. God is the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He is not just Elohim, but He is Yahweh Elohim. In Genesis 2, this is the fourth point, we also have a record of God creating the Holy of Holies of the cosmic temple. And then 5, Adam's task with Eve as his helpmate was to function as a priest in this temple to guard and keep it working towards its universal expansion. Now, points 3 through 5 of last week's sermon are very important concepts. I think you can kind of feel that as I read them. You're thinking to yourself, I hope, wow, these are massive concepts, very important concepts, and they deserve a greater attention than what we have given to them so far. And so in this sermon and in the next two, we're going to return to points 3 through 5 of last week's sermon, to flesh them out more thoroughly. Today we will focus on the covenant of works that was made with Adam in the garden. Next Sunday we will focus on the garden as a temple or sanctuary. And in two Lord's days we will, Lord willing, return to the idea of Adam as a priest in the garden of God. And so what do we mean when we say that God entered into a covenant of works with Adam in the garden? What do we mean when we say that God entered into a covenant of works with Adam in the garden? And answering this question will be the focus of this sermon today. A covenant is simply stated, it's, it's an agreement. A covenant is an agreement. But when we are speaking of a covenant made between God and man, we must speak more precisely. And I think it is right that we say that a covenant, a covenant between God in man, and man, is a divinely sanctioned commitment or relationship, quoting my friend Richard Barcelos, in his book, Getting the Garden Right. It is a divinely sanctioned commitment or relationship. And so a covenant is an agreement, but covenants between God and man are divinely sanctioned. There, there's something, there, are, there are things that God has taken the initiative in. He is the one who has initiated. Notice that it is God who initiates and establish, establishes covenants with man. Uh, this should make sense to you. Man has no right at all to say to God, God, here will be the nature and terms of our relationship. Can you imagine a creature approaching the Creator with that sort of attitude, right? God, I have decided that we will have a relationship with one another. And here are the terms of it. Here's how it's going to work. Of course, a man has no right before God uh, to set the terms of the relationship between God and man. Indeed, man has no right to even have a relationship with God, but God has determined to relate to His creature, and He has also set the terms of that relationship. It is a divinely sanctioned commitment or relationship that God enters into with man when He enters into covenant 
with him. God certainly has the right to say this to man, though. God has the right because he is creator and we the creature. We will relate to one another and on these terms. And in the pages of Holy Scripture, we find a number of covenants established between God and man, don't we? All of them were initiated and established by God. It is God who condescends to us. It is God who voluntarily brings himself low in order to relate to to us, his creatures. He is the one who enters into covenant with man. It should also be noticed that these covenants made between God and man, and, and there are many of them, are always for the betterment of mankind. God establishes covenants with his people in order to advance or better their estate. Divinely established covenants, to quote Nehemiah Cox now, involve a declaration of God's sovereign pleasure concerning the benefits He will bestow on His people, the communion they will have with Him, and the way and means by which this will be enjoyed. God has always related to His people by way of covenant. It is the covenant which establishes and defines God's relationship with His people, and God's intent is to better the state of man. We do have an analogy available to us, actually, when we're talking about covenants, and it's the analogy of the marriage covenant. Uh, The relationship that exists between a husband and a wife is very wonderful, it is very rich, but it is established and maintained by a covenant, isn't it? The husband and wife enter into an agreement with one another. They covenant together when they say, I take you to be my wedded spouse, And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful spouse in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, as long as we both shall live. That is the traditional thing that a husband and wife say to one another when they enter into the marriage covenant. It is a covenant which establishes and maintains the marriage relationship. And it should be recognized that God entering into covenant with man and God instituting the marriage relationship are set side by side in Genesis 2. Did you notice that? Here at the beginning of Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17, which we are considering today, we have an account of God entering into covenant with man, Adam in particular. And then immediately following that, what do you see there in the text of Genesis 2, except an account of the marriage covenant, the marriage relationship? Why? Why these two things set side by side? It is because the marriage relationship that we enjoy here on this earth is is meant to picture It's meant to function as an analogy of the relationship that exists between God and His people. It was created for that. It's not as if Paul, let's say, uh, you know, thousands of years after the creation of man said, you know what, I I want to explain what a covenant is a little bit better uh, to to the church. I I want to explain the nature of Christ's relationship to the church. And so I think I'll use the marriage relationship as an analogy to help them. It's not that he did that. It's that the marriage relationship was created to function as an analogy of Christ's relationship to the church, of God's relationship to His people from the beginning. It was created to function as a picture of it. That is precisely what Ephesians chapter 5 tells us. And so we see that these two things are set side by side in Genesis 2. God entering into covenant with man and also the institution of marriage, the first marriage. The marriage relationship was created to function as an image of Christ's relationship to the church. The covenant of marriage made between man and woman is a picture of the divinely sanctioned covenant made between God 
and His people. And so a covenant is simply an agreement. And when speaking of a covenant made between God and man, we must say that it is a divinely sanctioned commitment or relationship. God is the one who initiates. And there are many covenants found in the pages of Holy Scripture. In due time, and I mean it might take a very long time, but in due time we will consider uh, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic, and the Davidic. But two covenants are of supreme importance, for they are the root and the fruit of the others that have just been mentioned. Now, these covenants, the, the Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic, they pointed forward to and prepared the way for the covenant of grace that was ratified in Christ's blood. We call the covenant of grace the new covenant. Remember how Christ said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That is 1 Corinthians 11.25. The new covenant, which is the covenant of grace, is the fruit, as it were, of all the covenants which preceded it. They all pointed forward to and prepared the way for the covenant of grace that was ratified by Christ. Are you following along with me? Noahic? Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, all important, but they're preparatory, right? They're they're preparing the way for something much greater, uh, much more significant, and that is the covenant of grace ratified in Christ's blood. It is the new covenant. And so we must give special emphasis to, to the new covenant, the covenant of grace. But there is another very important covenant which might be called the root or foundation of all the others that have been mentioned. It is called the covenant of works. We might also call it the covenant of obedience or the covenant of creation or the covenant of life. It it goes by many names, and I think all of these names are are appropriate and fine. Uh, Sometimes it is called the Adamic covenant, for it was made with Adam in the garden. And what did it require except his personal, exact, entire, and perpetual obedience? And what did it do except promise life upon the keeping of it? See our confession, chapter 19, paragraph 1. When I say that the covenant of works is the root of the other covenants, I mean that it is the foundation. All other biblical covenants flow from it. Indeed, you cannot correctly understand the covenants made with Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, if you do not first understand the covenant of works that was made with Adam in the garden. In fact, the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace, of which you and I are partakers if we are in Christ, would not even be possible without there first being a covenant of works made with Adam in the garden. Did you hear what I just said to you? The covenant of grace, the new covenant, would not even be possible if there were not, first of all, a covenant of works made with Adam in the garden. The covenant of works is the root of all other biblical covenants. It is even the root of the covenant of grace. Another way to to say this is, if you want to understand the Bible, if you want to understand your sin and the, the, the natural guilt that we have before God, if you want to comprehend what it is that Christ actually accomplished for you, then you had better pay attention to the covenant that was made with Adam in the garden. We have defined a covenant between God and man generally as a divinely sanctioned commitment or relationship. And this general definition that I have given 
fits all of the covenants that God has entered into with man. It works for each and every one of them. But let us now define the covenant of works specifically. Let us define the covenant of works specifically. And again, I do appreciate the words of Dr. Rich Barcellus, who defines the covenant of works as that divinely sanctioned commitment or relationship that God imposed upon Adam, who was a sinless representative of mankind, an image-bearing Son of God, conditioned upon His obedience with a penalty for disobedience, all for the bettering of man's estate. So let us think about this definition for a moment and consider it in the light of the Genesis narrative that is before us today. In fact, the rest of the sermon is going to be devoted to considering this definition and considering it in light of Genesis 2, 4 and following. First of all, the covenant of works was a divinely sanctioned commitment or relationship that God imposed upon Adam. Uh, This relationship, in other words, was not Adam's idea, but it was God's idea. Before God, Adam had no rights. He had no right to say, here will be the nature and terms of our relationship, God. Uh, For Adam was the creature and God the creator. This distinction between creator and creature was firmly established in Genesis 1. I don't know if you can remember that. That really was the emphasis of the narrative of Genesis 1. God is God and man is man. There is a distinction between creator and creature. That distinction is so fundamental and so important, it must be maintained as we continue on considering the rest of Holy Scripture. Man did not make God, but God made man. Man, therefore, by virtue of his creation. Man, because he is God's creation stands obligated before his maker. He is to worship and serve him always. That's true of everyone who has ever lived. Do you realize that? Everyone who has ever lived is obligated to worship and serve God. Why? Creator, creature. Creator, creature. That fact alone obligates man to live in obedience to God. Man, therefore, by virtue of his creation, stood obligated for his before his maker, to worship and serve him always. Uh, The fact of creation itself establishes this relationship. No specific covenant was needed to establish this fact. But God did graciously enter into a covenant with man. The covenant of works was a divinely, divinely sanctioned commitment or relationship that God imposed upon Adam. Uh, This should not be difficult to see in the narrative of Genesis 1 and 2. God made man. God blessed man. God commanded the man, male and female, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion over it. Do you remember that from Genesis 1.28? This was their task. God said it was their task. He commanded it. The same is true of chapter 2. The Lord God made man and then establishes the terms of their relationship. This might seem like a strange point to emphasize given its simplicity. I, I can almost hear you saying to me, okay, we get it. Uh, God is God and man is man. God has the right to initiate and to establish the terms of the relationship. Move on already, pastor, right? I can, I, I can hear you thinking it. But herein lies the difference between true and biblical religion and that which is man-made. Why do I emphasize it? Because it's so significant. Herein lies the difference between true and biblical religion and that which is man-made. Herein lies the difference between the child of God and the rebel still in his sin. The child of God says, yes, 
God has the right and I will submit to him. The rebel says, I will decide for myself and go my own way. That is what the rebel says. Indeed, the narrative of Genesis will soon enough prove the point. This was Adam's problem in Genesis 3. He ended up saying, I will decide for myself and go my own way. Uh, The covenant of works was a divinely sanctioned commitment or relationship that God imposed upon Adam. And what was Adam to do? He was to submit to that. He was to live in obedience to it. Secondly, the covenant of works was made with Adam, who was a sinless representative of mankind, an image-bearing son of God. Notice that the covenant was made with who? Adam, specifically. It was made with Adam. The woman, whose name was Eve, had not been created yet when the Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This Covenant, this agreement, these terms were given specifically to whom? To Adam. And the woman had not been formed yet. The covenant was made with Adam and not Eve. Notice that Adam was at first sinless. Everything that God had made was good, indeed very good. Adam was made upright. To quote our confession, God endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice, and it is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. In other words, Adam was free in his state of innocency. He had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, yet he was unstable so that he might fall from it. But Adam was created good and upright. He was sinless. God entered into a covenant of works or obedience with Adam and endued him with the power and ability to keep that covenant. Adam was sinless, he was good and upright in the beginning. And notice that Adam was a representative of all mankind. In other words, another way to put it is that had Adam succeeded, all would have enjoyed life. When Adam fell, all fell in him. And so you and I were born in sin because we were born in Adam. We descended from him by birth. He was our federal head or our representative. And what I am saying to you, brothers and sisters, is that though this doctrine is very unpopular, no teaching in all of Scripture is more clear than this. It is crystal clear. You cannot avoid it. Adam was our federal head or representative. He represented all who came from him. In Adam, all sinned because he functioned as this public figure. Uh, The narrative of Genesis confirms that Adam was the federal head and representative of all humanity. The narrative of Genesis itself proves the point. Think of it. We haven't gotten there yet, but we will in due time. But you should be familiar with the story. Adam falls in Genesis 3. He listens to the advice of the woman. He partakes. And where is he sent, therefore? Where are the man and woman sent? They're, They're cast out of the garden temple of God. And there are angels set to guard the entrance to that place. He is banished from it, alienated from God, given over to death. He dies in the moment that he partakes. He enters into that state of death. And he does eventually die. And where are all of his children born? Where are they all born? Do they get their own crack at it? Placed in the garden again? See how they do? Every single one of them is born 
outside of Eden, alienated from God. They are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, right? Uh, to quote Ephesians. Uh, they're born outside of Eden, aren't they? They did not have the same opportunity that their parents did, but the sin of, of their parents, the sin of Adam in particular, is imputed to them. They are born in sin, and they themselves are born dead in their sins, and they themselves do eventually die. We will come to this eventually, but the emphasis in the earliest chapters of Genesis, after Genesis 3, is, is death. So and so lived, and they, and they died, and they died, and they died. Why? Because Adam fell. Because Adam sinned, and his sin impacted not himself only, but all who came from him, because he was a federal head, a representative of mankind. He was a public figure. Uh, this is also the explicit teaching of Holy Scripture. Not only can you see it in the narrative of Genesis, but the Scriptures explicitly teach this doctrine. The psalmist, for example, says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. When, when did the psalmist, David, find himself in sin? Upon conception. That's when he found himself in sin, not when he reached some mythical age of accountability, but rather when he was conceived. He was born in sin. In fact, uh, Ephesians 2, 3 says that we are all by nature children of wrath, and Paul develops this idea most thoroughly in Romans 5 in the passage that was read earlier, saying, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Here, uh, Paul is developing this idea of federal headship. Adam's actions... Uh, influence everyone. And so the clear teaching of Scripture is that the covenant of works was made with Adam, who was a sinless representative of mankind. I'll ask you this question. Does this bother you? Does this bother you, the idea that Adam represented all of us, that his actions had this negative impact upon us? It bothers a lot of people. I hope that it does not bother you. Uh, and I will simply say this to you. If it does bother you, uh, this principle is actually woven into our everyday experience. You might not think it. But this principle of, of, of federalism, of, of, of representation, is, is woven into our everyday experience. This principle that the decisions of others impact others too, uh, impact us. We, we see it all the time. The decisions of others impact us. The decisions that our parents made had an impact upon us, didn't they? We had nothing to do with those decisions, and yet they impacted us. We have a president right now. His decisions impact us. We have a Congress. We, we have representatives. We should be able to understand this. We live in a, in a, in a federal republic, don't we? We're, we should be able to get how this works. Others make decisions, and our day-to-day -day life is impacted. And we see that principle was at work in the garden. Adam represented all of hum, humanity. And then I would say this also, not only do we see the principle interwoven into our everyday life, but your salvation in Christ actually depends upon this principle. If this principle is not true, then you have no salvation in Christ Jesus. What do I mean? Well, just as Adam is the federal head of all humanity, his actions represent and affect all who are in him, so too Christ is the federal head of the elect, all who have faith in him. Just as Adam's sin was imputed to all who are in Him, and is imputed to all who are in Him, so too Christ's righteousness is imputed to all who are in Him. Do, do you benefit from Christ if, if you have faith in Him? You do. Why? Not because you have done anything, but all because of what He has done. 
He lived the righteous life. He atoned for sin. You had nothing to do with that at all, but because you have faith in Him, being called by God graciously to have faith in Him, all that Christ did and earned and accomplished is now given to you because He is your head. He is your representative. And so this principle might bother you, but it is truth. It is the truth of Scripture clearly stated from beginning to end. Thirdly, the covenant of works made with Adam was conditioned upon his obedience with a penalty for disobedience. It is a covenant of works. It is a covenant of obedience. It's conditioned upon his obedience. Adam must hold up his end of the bargain, as it, as it, as it were, though there was no bargaining that took place, of course, between God and man here. What was Adam's obligation in the covenant of works specifically? What was he to do? The answer is that he was to obey God. And what was he to do specifically? Well, remember that Adam, having been made in the image of God and having been blessed by God, was to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it. I'm reading now from Genesis 1, 27 through 28. He was to be fruitful, he was to multiply, and he was to fill the earth and subdue it, and he was to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This was his task. Adam was to fill the whole earth with God's image. Remember, he was made in the image of God, and he was to fill the whole earth with God's image. He was to subdue the earth. He was to rule and reign on earth as God's vice-regent. He was to function as a king. In other words, he was to expand the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. This should sound familiar to you guys. Doesn't the New Testament maybe talk about something like this? About I don't know, the expansion of God's kingdom. Go therefore and make, make disciples of all nations, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It, the language sounds familiar, and it should, because this whole concept began not with Christ, but with Adam in the garden. His job was to fill the whole earth with the image of God. God's kingdom was to be expanded to the very ends of the earth. And what do we see at the end of the book of Revelation, except that actually accomplished, not through Adam, but through Christ. All is kingdom of God. This was his job. In Genesis 2, we learn specifically that God planted a garden in Eden. It is not the garden of Eden. It is the garden in Eden. There is a place called Eden, and the garden was planted in it. And then God, having created man outside of Eden placed him in Eden. And so we have this picture at the beginning, especially with the mention of the different kinds of plants. Do you remember that? Wild plants that grow only by rainfall, but also the kind of plants that grow through the process of cultivation. We, we have this image now where the earth is not all garden paradise. You understand this. Rather, there are wild places there are unorganized places. There are places that are without form and void. Do you hear the terminology being drawn from the very f first few verses of Genesis 1? There are places that, are, that, that have not been subdued yet. There are wild places, but there is this garden. This garden that God Himself has planted, filled with the kinds of plants that grow through the process of cultivation primarily. And Adam is placed there. He is to work that garden. He is to keep and protect that garden. And in fact, he is also to expand 
that garden through the process of cultivation. He is to promote God's glory in that place. There is a distinction between garden and not garden. And what is Adam to do except begin to push out the, the boundaries and barriers of that garden to the very ends of the earth so that all becomes holy of holies, so that all the earth is filled with the glory of God. That garden, we will come back to this in a later sermon, was a sanctuary where God walked with man. And Adam is to promote that. He's to protect that. He's to expand that to the very ends of the earth. Notice the mention of the four rivers in verses 10 through 14. I won't read the passage again because I have such a difficult time pronouncing the names of two of those rivers. Um, but do you notice how un- unexpected uh, that, little, that little section is in, in Genesis 2, 10 through 14? The narrative seems to be just kind of rolling along and then all of a sudden there's this detail about about rivers, four of them, uh, that emanate from Eden, right? And there's also this mention of, of there being gold in the land that is good, you know. Uh, we'll, we'll learn as we continue to study the Pentateuch that these stones and the gold, it's useful in the worship of God, in the building of temples and sanctuaries. Are you tracking along with me? Uh, we'll, we'll learn this when we come to um, the days of Moses and the construction of the tabernacle and temple. I think the idea here is that these four rivers, they go to the four corners of the earth and they provide all that will be needed for the accomplishment of the task that was given to Adam. Adam is to fill the earth, isn't he? He's to expand this garden temple of God. And here we see that God, being the source of everything that is good, has graciously provided for Adam everything that he will need. He's going to need to push out the boundaries of the garden and promote the glory of God to the ends of the earth. And these rivers are going so that he might cultivate the land. The land that is now wilderness. The land that is now uncultivated. Adam will have everything that he needs to to expand this garden sanctuary of God. Uh, It's really a beautiful thing. Uh, Yes, the text does not say it explicitly, but if we read this Bible text in the context of all other Bible texts, it becomes clear Uh, This is what Adam was to do while living. He was to expand the garden temple of God and he was to live in entire, exact, and perpetual obedience to God. Uh, Clearly, Adam was placed under a probation or a time of testing. Do you see it? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there in the midst of the garden, also the tree of life, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a tree of testing. The tree would show if Adam had remained loyal to God. By abstaining from the tree, according to the commandment of God, Adam would prove himself faithful to God. But by partaking, Adam would prove himself a rebel. He would prove himself to be a breaker of the covenant of works, which was a covenant requiring exact entire and perpetual obedience. We, we tend to, dream, uh, to view the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as if, it, as if there was something um, magical about it, maybe even poisonous, you know. Uh, it was a normal tree, I think. I think it was a very normal tree, but God said, this tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat of it. And what was it doing? It was testing Adam to see if there was obedience in his heart or rebelliousness in his heart. There was nothing poisonous about that tree, but when he took of the fruit and he ate of it, he said, God, I am going to decide for myself what is good and what is evil. I'm going to take that privilege to myself. I have decided that you are not the one that should have that 
a privilege, God, you deciding what is good and evil, but I will take it to myself and decide which way I will go. Adam broke the covenant of works through the simple act of disobedience. He became a rebel. Fourthly, the covenant of works made with Adam was for the bettering of man's condition. The covenant of works made with Adam was for the bettering of man's condition. Think about what I have just said here. Where was Adam living along with his beautiful wife Eve? Where were they? The garden in Eden. And we often call that place what? Paradise. And here I am saying that the covenant of works that was made with him in that garden was for the bettering of his condition. You might think to yourself, how could it get any better than this? Here Adam is in paradise, enjoying life in this wonderful place that God has created for him. In Genesis 2.9, though, we read, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The presence of the tree of life in the garden indicates that Adam had a higher form of life offered to him by God. What is this tree of life? Isn't he already alive? More than that, isn't he already alive in paradise? What good thing could possibly come to him should he take of the fruit of the tree of life and eat of it? What what better thing could he possibly get? But clearly, this tree of life is holding out something to Adam. Something is being offered to him. Life, but of a higher order. Life of a better kind. Though he was alive in paradise, we must remember that Adam was still prone to fall. Adam, being under a time of testing, had not yet attained the glory of God. His task was not accomplished. The whole earth was not filled with the glory of God. The whole earth was not kingdom of God. The whole earth was not filled with the image of God. So he, Adam, was in a time of testing He was to pass the test, and then he was to eat of the tree of life and enter into glory. That is the meaning of this tree in the Garden of Eden. Brothers and sisters, Adam never ate of it. He never ate of this tree. Adam sinned and fell short of the glory of God. And now it might be said that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 uh, 23. But see for now that, that the covenant of works made with Adam was for the bettering of man's condition. Adam, by keeping the covenant, was to advance to a higher form of life, not only for himself, but for all of his posterity whom he represented. He was to pass the test. He was to enter into glory. This we know Adam failed to do. But where Adam failed, Christ has succeeded. Do you see how this all comes back to the covenant of works, therefore? We enjoy Christ. We enjoy the covenant of grace. Yes, it is true. But it all comes back to the covenant of works, doesn't it? Where Adam failed, Christ has succeeded. Christ kept, in other words, the covenant of works. Christ kept the covenant of works. Christ remained obedient to God to the very end. His obedience, Christ's obedience, was in fact entire, exact, and perpetual. Where Adam failed, Christ has succeeded. Adam was the Son of God by virtue of His creation, but Christ, 
being the eternal Son of God, entered into glory when He kept the covenant of works. And this He did not only for Himself, but for all the elect as He functioned as their federal head or representative. Listen to that famous prayer of Jesus. We call it the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He's praying for His disciples, and then a little later on in the passage, He prays also for you and me. He prays for the disciples that will come after them. But listen, in John chapter 17, we read, Jesus lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth. What is Jesus saying? The hour has come to glorify me, uh, Father. The hour has come for me to enter into glory because I have glorified you on earth faithfully. Exactly, perfectly, perpetually. I have glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Do you hear this? I have accomplished the work that you have given to me. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people who, whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I read that passage only to show you that, that Christ viewed Himself as the second Adam. He viewed Himself as the keeper of the covenant of works. He viewed Himself as the faithful one, the one who has obeyed God completely from beginning to end, and therefore had the right to enter into glory as the God-man, as the Christ. And this He did not only for Himself, but also for all given to Him by the Father from eternity past. Jesus kept God's word. He finished His work. Jesus was qualified, therefore, to enter into glory, into that higher form of life that was offered to Adam in the garden at the beginning. Jesus entered in not alone, but as a representative for others. He earned salvation for all whom the Father had given Him. And so the question that must be asked, brothers and sisters, is are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? One of the other is true of you. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. How do we get in Adam? How do we come to have Adam as our federal head or representative? Can anyone tell me? It's not difficult. We put no effort into it at all. We were born. We were born into this world with Adam as our head, with Adam as our federal representative. That's true of every child born into this world. It was true of you and me. But how do we get into Christ? How do we come to be united to Him, and to have Him as our federal head, our representative. Is He the federal head and representative of all who have ever lived and ever will live? Certainly not. How do we come to have Christ as our federal head or representative? Through faith. Through faith in Him, which itself is a gift of God. When we believe upon Christ, we are united to Him by faith. We are in Him. We are in union with Him. He becomes our representative, and we begin to enjoy all the benefits, right, that He has earned for us. I might ask the question in another way, are you under the covenant of works, or are you under the covenant of grace? If you are in Adam, then you are under the covenant of works. You are born into this world in a covenantal relationship with God. People do not need a relationship with God. You understand this, right? Everyone has 
a relationship with God by nature, by, by virtue of their birth. They are born into this world and they are related to God covenantally. The trouble is they are related to God covenantally by birth on the terms of the covenant of works and that covenant is broken, isn't it? It is unable to lead us to God or to bring us home to Him. It is unable to provide eternal life for us. Why? Because Adam sinned and broke that thing and brought upon himself the, the, the penalty of that, that covenant, which is death. And we too, being in Adam, were born in sin and we do actually sin. The covenant of works cannot save us. It could save Adam when he was upright. It had that potential. But once it was broken, it is unable to save. When we are born into this world, we are born in Adam. When we are born into this world, we are born under the covenant of works, and the only thing that it can do is condemn us. When we read the law of God, even in its simple and condensed form, the Ten Commandments, we should come to the realization that I have transgressed this law time and time again. I am not a law keeper. Instead, I am a law breaker. And the more mature we become in Christ, the more we realize that we are law breakers through and through. This law requiring obedience cannot save It can only condemn now that we are fallen. But who are they who are in the covenant of grace? They are all who are in Christ, who have faith in Him. When we come to faith in Christ by the grace of God and by the uh, powerful working of the Holy Spirit, we are brought into the covenant of grace. Now all of a sudden we are viewed and we are judged, not on the basis of our own works, thanks be to God, but we are viewed and we are judged based on the works of another Christ Jesus, our Lord, He stands in our place as our representative, and what God sees is His perfect, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. His righteousness is then imputed to all who are in Him. Are you under the covenant of works, or are you under the covenant of grace? To be in the covenant of works and under it means that you will stand before God someday, and you will be judged based on the terms of that covenant. Have you obeyed God perfectly? I can't imagine anyone on this planet having the arrogance to stand up and say, yes, I have. No one keeps God's law. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But if you are under the covenant of grace, then you will stand before God, and you will not stand before Him based upon the question, have you kept God's law perfectly, but are you trusting instead in the one who has, Christ Jesus our Lord? To be under the covenant of works means death, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But to be under the covenant of grace means life, that is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is most rich. Lord, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters in Christ that we would believe this as true, Uh, Father, that we would live according to it. I pray for those who do not yet know Christ, who have not placed their faith in Him, that they would, that Your Spirit would work upon them, Lord. We pray that You would do this work even in our midst, Lord. We certainly pray that You would do this work to the ends of the earth. Make us faithful to proclaim this wonderful good news that though by nature we are children of wrath, God, You have graciously provided a Savior for us. We are grateful, Lord. And so, Father, we do pray that You would work amongst us, drawing many to salvation through the good news of Jesus Christ, and by the working of your Holy Spirit. Father, convict us of our sin. Show us how heinous it is, and also show us how beautiful the Christ is, that he has redeemed us from the curse of the law. 
Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us also to apply your word, to walk worthy before you. And it, it is indeed true we cannot be saved through law-keeping, and yet we have your law given to us as a light to our path. Lord, help us to keep it, not for salvation, but because we have been saved. Help us to walk according to your law. Strengthen your church, we pray. And we say it in the name of Christ, and all of God's people say, Amen.